You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. People about you and how to share what you are and who you are and what you mean to us and to them. Jesus' name. Well, that is kind of a dangerous prayer to pray, as you said, um, for opportunities to share the gospel. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Good to see you again. My name is Evan, the lead pastor here at Common Ground, and it is my privilege um, to welcome you to week three in our series simply called Practices. Um, And in this series, we are talking about how the way of Christ is a way of life, how following Jesus is more than just this abstract mix of ideas, but following Jesus is a way of life. And in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and who put it into practice. Because we know it's God's desire that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. That's why James, Jesus' brother, also said, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So we've been looking at a handful of practices that help us to do what the word of God says. Um, and last, or I guess two weeks ago, we talked about the practice of communion, about the bread and the wine. Last week we talked about prayer and and the practice of of communicating with God. And today we're going to talk about the practice of community, of fellowship. This practice that Christians all around the world engage in, in gathering together in groups. And what we're going to look at is, you know, why we don't all as Christians just take monastic vows, move out of society and live in the middle of nowhere with Jesus. But why we do actually value being together why we face the risks that we do and how we can practice this important aspect of following Jesus today with all that we are considering. And now I do have a bit of a disclaimer at the very beginning here. As we look at the practice of community, we know that this is a complicated thing, right? Especially today. And so what I'm going to kind of mention here as a disclaimer is that you know as your pastor I'm I'm responsible for for preaching to the issues and and I'm doing that and I'm going to do that but also one of my main responsibilities is to teach the word authentically and to focus on Jesus and to start from that place that it's not all about behavior modification and sometimes it's not all about like the application as far as as my message is concerned and so what that means is that today as we look at the practice of community in light of all the risks we face I'm essentially going to kind of focus on the heart postures of community. And there's going to be a lot of application that I think my message is going to fall a little short on. And that is where your role is going to come in to recontextualize that and to figure out how you can best apply that yourself, right? And so I'm not going to be able to provide like a great instruction if you're hoping that I would come up here and tell everyone, you know, everybody needs to go home right now and we need to, you know, be locked up and I'm not going to tell everyone y'all need to be here right now. We need to only be together. That's going to be a bit of you determining from your heart posture how the spirit is guiding you to make these decisions. Okay, so there's a bit of a disclaimer. We're going to focus on the heart posture and how the spirit is going to work through each one of us individually. So now with that, here's a bit of an exercise to get us thinking about community and thinking about this practice. Now I want you to look at someone who's near you and make eye contact with them.
for about five seconds here. Turn and find someone who's near you. Make eye contact with them for about five seconds. See them? Okay. That five seconds probably felt like an eternity. Now turn and look at someone else near you. Another person near you. Make eye contact for about five seconds. If you're on live stream and you only have two people in the room, maybe you type in like the eyes emoji and you're looking at one of the other people that are on there. Um, But look at someone. Five seconds. Okay. Sit in the awkwardness that is doing that. Okay. You can break eye contact now. You can break eye contact. And you can have a chuckle at how awkward that was. But here's here's what I want you to realize. Here's what I want you to realize. Bring it back up here. Bring it back up here. I guess it wasn't awkward for you guys. You love that. I guess I'd be the only one that'd be uncomfortable with that. Anyway, what I hope that you realize is that the person you just made eye contact with, or both of those people, are literally God's plan for building a body on this earth. That person that was incredibly awkward to look at (laughs) is God's plan for creating flesh and bone and ligaments and tissues on this planet. That that person is key to God's plan of bringing redemption and hope and healing to Rapid City and to the entire world. That person you just looked at. Because that person is a part of the body. And that person is important for us to be connected with and to be united with. And so today we're really going to look at the importance of this whole idea of the body of Christ. Of these people being the flesh and the bone and the ligaments and the body of Christ. So with that, find your way to Romans chapter 12. Whip out your Bibles. We are going to be in Romans chapter 12. We are going to start in verse 3, and we will read all the way through the end of it in verse 21. So Romans chapter 12, verse 3. We're going to read this whole thing together, and then periodically in our time together, we're going to come back to certain aspects, and we're going to really look at the heart posture that Paul is teaching here as far as our approach to the body and our approach to this practice of community. So Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you and do not curse. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Now with this reality and this this big picture of the people of God as the body of God, we should be highly motivated to spend time with one another and to practice community. And I think most of us are on board with that, right? I think, if anything... This generation that's that's experiencing what we're experiencing this year, I will never have to argue or convince anyone of the importance of community ever again, I think. And so I'm kind of relieved at that. I think because of the disruption we've had this year, we all recognize the importance of community, how hard it is to follow Jesus without our community around us. But... I think one of the things that maybe we're more aware of, of how risky community is these days, you know, community has really always had risks. Practicing authentic community has always carried with it risks, and that's why it is always going to be hard to practice authentic community. That oftentimes, community is risky, you know, for a variety of reasons. Our current political divide means that we could spend time with someone and end up not getting along all that well. That there are racial tensions, that there are divisions among economic classes, gender, sexuality, the use of online algorithms that are literally designed to maximize the flaws in us and minimize our ability to empathize with the flaws in others, right? These are all risks. And there's also this whole invisible infection we could be carrying at any time and not know it, right? All of these things bring risks to community. But there have always been this risk. And the thing is that that the alternative to not having any sort of community is actually far worse than facing these risks. You see, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, wrote this. He said, to love is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. And in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, but irredeemable. You see, with community and with any kinds of relationships, we face risk. And if we define risk as exposure to chance of injury or loss, if we've been in any sort of interpersonal relationships, at some point we have probably been hurt or face loss. And so we see these risks. But Lewis here made the point that we need community and we need relationships the same way we need air. And the Apostle Paul in this passage we read explained that we need community in the way we need our body to have all of its parts. The main risks that the Romans were facing in this passage here were interpersonal conflict. 
They didn't face all the things that we face today, but some of them were pretty similar, especially in regards to conflicts with one another. And with community today, I would say this is one of our biggest risks as well. Interpersonal conflict, arguments with one another, division. But I would also say that this isn't that bad of a thing. That actually we need interpersonal conflict in community. That we shouldn't be afraid of this risk. That in the Christian community, because Jesus' salvation is, is given freely to all people, all people means a lot of different people, right? This means that we are grafted in from a variety of different places, from different biases, from different backgrounds, with differing opinions. And no matter what, at some point we're going to face conflict. At some point our opinions, at some point our desires are going to contradict or they're going to clash a little bit, right? And so as iron sharpens iron, as we sharpen one another, sometimes there's a bit of friction and a bit of sparks. Sometimes there's some loud, clanging, annoying sounds and conflict happens, right? The thing is, interpersonal conflict is not something that we should fear in community. It's something that we should see as an opportunity for God to grow us. Now, Ken Sandy, a writer of the book The Peacemaker, if any of you have read that, he also founded, um, he's on to new things now. He founded an organization called Relational Wisdom 360, which I would highly recommend. Um, great resources on relational wisdom there. Um, but in The Peacemaker, he wrote this. He said, Conflict is one of the many tools that God will use to help you develop a more Christ-like character. So you see, conflict is one of these tools that God can use to develop Christ-like character. And the thing is, these conflicts only come up in community. You see, you don't actually need community to have faith, honestly. You could live alone in a cave in the middle of nowhere, and you could still have faith and be in a relationship with God and be saved. And you don't actually need community to you know, do good things like helping the poor. There are plenty of people out there with enough money they can just write off a check and send it and do lots of good. But you need community to be formed into the likeness of Christ and to be formed into a loving person. See, we have to have people around us. We have to be interacting with one another in order to have the opportunity to go beyond ourselves. In order to have the opportunity to maybe deny ourselves, to put others first, to become a person of love. You know, if we don't actually practice this love with one another or towards one another, then these are just ideas floating around in our head, and Jesus wants more formation for us. He has more for us. Now, last week we talked about the practice of prayer in silence and solitude, and it's honestly one of my favorite practices. Um, it comes pretty easy for me with my personality and with my preferences. I love spending time in silence and solitude. The thing is that we are shaped in this time of silence and solitude in order then to be moved into community. That it's from this place that we don't just stay there, um, but it's to be shaped in order to be in community. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, Let him who is not in community be beware of being alone. Because it's in community that then God will flesh out these things that he's growing in us in private. And you see, as much as I love silence and solitude, 
I spend enough time in silence and solitude, you know, I feel like a really godly person in that. I feel like a really holy person when I practice silence and solitude. But then when I'm around others, I don't always feel that way. Right? And it's in these places when we're around others, when we're in community, when we're interacting with one another, that the formation takes place and that God can change us. Now, in regard to this passage in Romans, um, Douglas Moo, who wrote one of the textbooks that I've always used to study the book of Romans, wrote this. He said that Paul is especially concerned that believers not take too individualistic an approach to transformation. Thus, he, being Paul, wants us to recognize that the transformation of character is seen especially in our relationships with one another. So we practice community in light of these risks because of the good things that they can bring out of us. Because of the heart posture changes that they can bring in us. And so we're going to move into looking at three main heart postures that I think God forms in us and changes in us as we practice community. So these three heart postures are going to be humility before rightness, service over selfishness, giving joy and growing joy. That's where we're going to kind of head today. So on the topic of humility before rightness, if we look here at verses 3, verse 10, and verse 16 of Romans 12, it says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Okay? So humility before rightness, we know we shouldn't think so highly of ourselves that we think we can do this on our own. We think we can follow Jesus on our own. We shouldn't think that out of our own effort and isolation that we can experience the spiritual formation that Jesus has for us. We shouldn't think that we don't need other people to grow But also, you know, in relationship with others, we have to take a practice of humility and not focusing so much on our rightness, right? You know, we live in a time when we're often tempted to push our our rightness on others. And I'm saying rightness, not righteousness. Like this isn't things having to do with salvation or these aren't holiness issues. These are just our opinions on a variety of things. But we often want to push them on others. I feel this tension as well. You know, I'm really tempted that I want to push my recycling agenda on everyone in Rapid City. Thinking, like, this is something I want to tell everybody about, right? But we have to take a humble position in terms of these different things and not to be pushing this on everybody else. You know, when we think we're right, we want others to think the same thing. And we can't figure out why they don't see it the way we see it. But what we have to realize in this diverse body of Christ is that there are going to be those conflicts. There are going to be those differences. And not to push others to this point, but to choose humility instead. Okay, let's do a little exercise looking at Romans 12 here. Okay, so take kind of a step back. Look at this whole chapter of Romans chapter 12 that we read. And scan it. Pull it back. And I'm going to give you about 20 seconds to scan. And I want you to see, is there any instruction in this whole chapter or any encouragement about being right or about correcting others? Okay, let's look for that in this chapter.
Yeah. What What is your Bible? It's, it's about I'm sure I'm like you know Pharisee. Hmm. So the Pharisee doing So I really Yeah. Yeah. And explain anything here that looks like Pharisaical behavior, right? Can anyone find anything do you think you could use to maybe argue? about rightness or about using your own intellect to correct others. Go ahead, um, if you didn't find anything, look at verse 9. Okay, Verse 9 is, I think, one that we would cling to a lot or that we would use. Verse 9 says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Okay, and I think some people could use that. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Like, that's such a good saying. I'm sure someone out there has that like tattooed on their bicep. You know? I hate what is evil and I only cling to what is good. And we love that verse in our culture, and that's great. We cling to that verse. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. The thing is, I think we look and we focus only on that one phrase, and we we get really, really good at hating evil. But what the sentence right before that says, that leads up to it, in verse 9, says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And oftentimes we can skip straight to hate what is evil, cling to what is good without, okay, what was the first thing Paul said there? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Right? And so when we have a tendency to, to push our rightness on others or to to demonize or to to convict others and condemn, we must realize that as we are hating what is evil, we do so from this place of sincere love. That we do this first. And it's from that posture that then we hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And so that is why Paul said, you know, the, re- the way that we hate what is evil in general is by clinging to what is good anyway. It's clinging to that sincere love. It's to cling to what is good. And in verse 21, at the very end of this whole chapter, Paul ends this whole section by overcoming evil with good. By overcoming evil with righteousness, with with Christ-like behavior. So the whole point here is that, okay, we're going to see evil in our community. And when we do, we cling to what is good. We operate with sincere love. And we love those people when we cling to Christ's gospel as we work with them. Now, we know that Jesus was pretty outspoken about evil in his day. He was outspoken about, you know, corruption in the church, and he was outspoken about the government taking advantage of people. But yet, he still invited people in who actually held these really bad ideas, right? We know, like Peter the Zealot, Jesus invited him to follow. We know that Matthew the tax collector, the guy funding a lot of corruption, Jesus still invited him to follow. And he invited people to cling to what is good, to cling to him, to follow him. And you see, we we typically feel most comfortable in, in communities where we don't have to push a lot of rightness on others, right? Where everybody already kind of feels those ways. Where everybody already has the same opinions as we do. And so it's really hard then for us when we run into those issues to figure out how we face those. And it's in these situations we must be humble to choose humility over rightness. And so we must first ask ourselves, how can we be humble in this situation? 
How can we not think too highly of maybe our own persuasive arguments? How can we not think too highly of our own ability to move that person from their idea to ours, but instead maybe love them into that, right? Because I think that's what Scripture is teaching here, that when, say, there's evil in someone's heart or, or an opinion they have, well, you know, debating them and arguing with them probably isn't going to change that, right? And I think a lot of us have experienced that. Scientists are now finding that typically when we debate with others, we don't change our minds. We actually become more entrenched in the ideas that we already thought. There's a great uh, 2017 article by Elizabeth Colbert in The New Yorker called Why Facts Don't Change Our Minds. And it talks all about this situation that that we don't actually change our minds in arguments and in debates. That actually it's through relationships and love that this takes place. Which is funny because that's actually kind of what the Bible has been teaching for a few thousand years. Right? Like Jesus made the connection between love and obedience, between love and a changed mind long ago when he said, if you love me, then you will obey my commandments. He didn't say, you know, when I present my great argument, then you'll obey my commandments. Jesus was making the connection between love and obedience there. So that's why one of the only ways to be changed in community, in conflict, to be more like Christ, is through sincere love. It's through standing up for the truth in a, in a sincere, loving way. It's humility before rightness. Now the second one, second point, um, we're looking for service over selfishness. Service over selfishness. So for this, uh, turn to look at verse 4. Verse 4 through 8. So we look at service over selfishness. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. Paul is talking all about service here. And if you've studied much of the Bible, you've probably seen a really similar thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 or in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul essentially kind of gives the same message there. He's talking about the spiritual gifts. He's talking about the things that God has given us to benefit our community, to serve and to bless our community. And so that awkward person that you made eye contact with earlier, believe it or not, they have spiritual gifts that God has given them to bless each and every one of us here. God has empowered us to do that. What we have to recognize then is that our gifts are used for others. That our gifts are not just for our own personal development. Our gifts are for serving the body, for serving the community, for building the church. We must realize that I, as an individual, I was equipped not just for myself, but for others, for the building up of the body. And so as we approach our community, one of the main heart postures that, that God is, is trying to pull out of us is to approach our community looking for ways to serve, looking for how we can serve our community, looking for what we can provide for our body. 
that we are here to grow the body, to grow the church. And that the body is not just here to grow us. Right? That the main goal, the main purpose is to serve Jesus' body. Now one of the other passages that speaks very similar to this is Ephesians chapter 4. And in this passage, Paul wrote this. He said, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. So the whole body is together in order to make the body grow. It goes in that order. Joseph Hellerman wrote this. He said, While Western Christianity has long focused on Jesus and me, the New Testament clearly focuses on Jesus and us. This position of it's not always about me, but that I am a part of the body for the body. Right? And in this, in this book that Hellerman wrote, he broke down kind of the main idea in Ephesians chapter 4. And I have a little bit of a visual here that he shared in that book where he broke down this passage and explained, okay, Paul's point was that the whole body makes the body grow. That each part is for the growth of the whole body and not the other way around that we often turn it to where the body is to make us, the parts, grow. But the parts, the whole body, make the body grow. And so it's really important to have this this framework as we enter into community to view our role as being critical to the growth of the body, as being critical to the growth of others, as, as our serving and our use of our gifts are things that the others around us need. That we are actually an important and a critical part of Jesus' body. And if any part of our body is injured, it actually hurts the whole body, not just the part. It's the whole body that makes the body grow. Oh, I used to play football growing up, and one of the things that you probably know about football is it's a pretty violent, pretty dangerous sport. Injuries happen. And there was one game where I dislocated my shoulder pretty badly, um, and so I had no motion or no function in my arm at all because it was dislocated so badly. The thing is, my adrenaline was pumping so much, and you know, you kind of get used to playing through pain in football, and so I just thought, yeah, it'll come back. Like, it's a stinger. So I stayed in the game and just played um, for longer than I should have. And then later on, we found out it was like a horrible dislocation. I had surgery because of it. But it was kind of funny then, you know, we would record our games and rewatch the footage later. And so we were trying to watch the footage and see, you know, where my, where my injury happened. It's kind of hard to tell because I had stayed in the game a few more plays. And in watching that footage, you know, it's like, okay, we saw me like hit a guy and maybe that was when it happened. And then we're like, okay, not sure if this is the time when it's going to happen. And then the next play, a guy, you know, caught a ball near me. I was on defense and I went running after them. And you could clearly see, okay, I think it was the previous play that I had dislocated my arm. Because in the video, I go running after the guy. And it's like my arm is just a wet noodle next to me. And so I go running after the guy. Just flopping around. The whole room as we're watching this film of just this loose noodle arm like bounce around. Just started laughing. Everybody started laughing. And then I get up next to the guy. And what does he do? He just stiff arms me and keeps me at arm distance. And I'm trying to like reach over and get him while we're running. But this arm is completely useless. And he just held me at arm's length. And I had no way of getting to him. No way of protecting me, myself. Because this one arm was useless. And he literally pushed me to the ground. 
And my whole body suffered because this one part wasn't doing its job. It was disconnected. And just dangled there useless. And because of that, my legs didn't really help. Uh, My other arm couldn't compensate. And I wasn't able to make the play like I should have. Because our whole body needs to be united and together in order to function properly as a whole. Our whole body has to be connected. So the whole body makes the body grow. And we look to serve. We look to do our part in the body. To equip others. To help others. Because our gifts are important. And God calls us to this place of service over selfishness. Now this third point. Joy. Or I guess give joy and grow joy. So this last thing I think Paul teaches in this chapter is to give joy and grow joy. Um, Verses 11 through 13 and then verse 15 I'm going to read here. It says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. So this almost kind of feels like a list that a lot of us are running out of right now, huh? Right? Can anyone else relate a bit? Sometimes I feel like that, right? Zeal can get low. Spiritual fervor tank can get a little low sometimes. Um, You know, I feel like patience isn't always the word to describe myself in this season. Um, Faithful in prayer sometimes can be a little hard and... And, and we face a lot of tests in this place. And, and we try to figure out, okay, well, if we are lacking in these things, how do we build this up? How do we build up our zeal? How do we build up our patience, our faithfulness? And Paul explains here, there in verse 12, we do so by being joyful. We build these other things up through joy. And the important context here is that this joy is built in community. And that this joy has grown in community. Jim Wilder wrote a book called The Other Half of Church in which he shared really what he learned about the body of Christ working, you know, kind of from the perspective of neuroscience and and having all these different people come together with different ideas. And, And he worked specifically with a neuroscience from UCLA who specializes in how the brain runs and how the brain grows. And one of the main findings that this scientist from UCLA found is that the brain literally runs off joy as a car runs off gas. He used the analogy that your brain runs off joy in a similar way that your body runs off food. And that this joy actually helps you to develop and regulate other emotions as well. So that through joy we actually see we develop empathy, zeal, fervor, patience, all of these things. So if we feel like we're lacking in these emotions, then Paul's instructions to serve the Lord, to serve the Lord's body, to give this joy, to practice hospitality for those in need, to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, these are ways to grow this joy. And we can actually grow in these other areas as well. And so Wilder asked the scientists, he said, okay, you know, how do we, how do we increase our joy then? If that's so critical to how our brains function, how do we increase it? And the scientist said, well, you increase it by experiencing it. And he said, you experience it from what they found. He said, you experience joy when you see the sparkle in someone's eyes that conveys, I am happy to be with you. 
essentially what these guys at UCLA found is that the brain's center for joy is grown through interactions with other people. Other people who are glad to see us, glad to be with us. That essentially God has wired us in such a way to grow and to be grown in joy by interacting with one another, by being connected to the body. And this is actually really consistent with a lot of what the Bible has said for a long time. You know, Matt and I just had a conversation recently about how it's really cool when science finally catches up to the Bible. And things that the scriptures have been teaching for thousands of years, people are finding out like, wow, it's true. You know, glad you caught up. But actually, this, this whole idea that joy is built through, through face-to-face interaction has been seen in the scriptures for a long time. In Numbers chapter 6, right, the original blessing that the priests would speak over the people. We sing a song very often that is from this, this passage, Numbers chapter 6. It says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. Right, face shining, face toward you, and that bringing joy. To me, that always seemed a little odd. You know, I thought maybe it was just a weird translation of the original Hebrew, but now it makes sense that it is through this this wiring of our brain to experience joy through the, the being the sparkle in someone's eye that we experience it. And so God here turning His face towards us. God here saying that that my face is turned towards you, and from that you may have joy and grow joy. Psalm 16.11 says that in your presence there is fullness of joy. But now, see, I use this Bible software app that compensates for my inability to speak Greek and Hebrew, and so I can just click on words, and they'll tell me what they mean. This word presence here, kind of a funny translation to move it just to the vague presence, because the literal Hebrew word here, presence, describes the face that turns on you. The face that is turned towards you, essentially. And that's God's presence. And in that, in God's face turned towards us, is the fullness of joy. So we know that we've been designed to receive and to grow joy through God's face. We know that being created in the image of God, then that through our face, we can give God's joy, we can give God's peace, and through us, Looking at someone and saying, I am glad to be with you. I'm glad to see you. We can actually give joy and grow joy in other people. And so Paul's instructions here in this little passage that we just read, we see each one of these not as things that we're lacking, but each one of these as an opportunity to give and to receive joy. We see serving the Lord. Okay, well, we just talked about how we serve the Lord by serving one another, by serving the church. By serving the Lord, we can turn our face towards someone and say, I'm glad. Glad to see you. And in serving and sharing with those who are in need, oftentimes we can be the one to give that. Or oftentimes we receive a smiling face, a sparkle in someone's eye who is happy to see us. And when we are doing these things and, and rejoicing with those who rejoice, if, if we're mourning with those who mourn, if we're playing that critical role of community in a time in someone's life, which is either the really high high or the really low low, those two are also opportunities 
for God's face to shine and for joy to be grown. So those become opportunities then to grow in joy and to give joy. So as we continue to lean into this valuable practice, as we continue to use our wisdom to figure out how we can best safely and wisely practice community today, may we do so from these heart postures, right? May we continue to choose humility over rightness. May we continue to choose service over selfishness. And may we continue to give joy and to grow joy. Maybe today as you go, that awkward person that you stared at earlier, you're able to look at them and say, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad to see you. I'm glad you are part of my body. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for shining your face upon us. Thank you for being the God who turns towards us and we can know that we are the sparkle in your eye. And God, it is from that place that we receive true joy. Would you continue to fill us with that joy that from that place it would flow out of us into our community. God, we acknowledge that you're not always the best at at loving and treating your body. But God, we commit to to following you in these heart postures. We commit to humility. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us to be more humble. Your Holy Spirit would show us ways in which we can put others first. Your Holy Spirit would show us ways in which we can go beyond ourselves and from that place that you would make us more like your Son. And Jesus, we commit to serving your body. We commit to looking for opportunities in which we can use our spiritual gifts for the benefit of others, for the growth of the whole body, and not just for ourselves. God, we repent of so often just looking for how we can be blessed and how we can be served and how we can be fed. And God, would you continue to show us ways in which we can do that for others, ways that we can contribute. God, thank you for the many gifts that you've blessed Common Ground Church with. So many people you've empowered in such mighty ways. Would you continue to help us to steward and to serve in those gifts? And Jesus, as we continue to follow you in this life and follow you in this practice of community, which seems like the most difficult thing that we can do, we know that you're leading us. And we commit to to looking for your guidance in this and to putting you first as we continue to determine what our behavior in this community looks like. We trust you in that. So Jesus, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.